Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As always, it's a joy to turn to God's Word together. And back in August, we began a four-month tour through the final three prophets in the Old Testament. And that tour ends this morning as we look at the final passage from Malachi. Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi have confronted Israel for their sin and their self-focus on material well-being. They've encouraged Israel in the face of doubt and discouragement. And of course, they've turned their minds again and again to that coming day when salvation will arrive. These prophets have been God's last words to his people before sending his son. In fact, the words we read this morning are God's final prophetic word until Gabriel will kick off the Christmas story. Now, in Malachi, Malachi's been cross-examining Israel's hearts, and for the last two weeks, he's exposed Israel's claim that God does not distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Israel's claimed that the promise of blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience seems quite false in the face of the facts. Malachi's already condemned this perspective, but this morning the Lord gives his definitive answer as he lays out how God is even now making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked that will be fully evident on the last day. So I hope you might turn with me to Malachi 3. We'll begin with verse 16 and read to the end of the book. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you that you gave it, you spoke it to your people Israel, and you continue to speak in it 
by your Spirit to us today. Would you use it to convict us of sin and draw us near to our Savior for his sake? Amen. Well, we're once again in the Christmas season. And that means that once again we're witnessing a comprehensive worldwide surveillance system that dwarfs anything that China can pull off. I'm referring, of course, to the elf on the shelf and Santa Claus's worldwide network of omniscience. After all, boys and girls, he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So be good for goodness sake. Yes, you know the song, whatever I quoted it. So be good for goodness sakes. And the stakes, of course, appear to be monumental because at stake is whether you will receive Christmas presents in five days or a lump of coal. And that's enough to strike fear into the heart of any child. But for any of you kids who might be nervous, there's a chink in this system. It's one that should be obvious, but it doesn't seem to get much notice. And it's this. I've never actually heard of anyone getting coal on Christmas morning. And it's kind of amazing with Santa's omniscience that he can conclude that every single boy and girl, every single year, deserves presents again. But for all the uh, talk of a system of good deeds, it's a pretty solid lock that you'll get presents on Christmas morning. And parents, I'm sorry if that just ruined your week of good behavior. (laughs) While this is good news for Christmas morning... This is essentially Israel's gripe with the Lord. And it was no laughing matter. See, they've been adding up the data points and they've decided that God doesn't actually distinguish between the righteous and the wicked for all that he claims to. So it's not worth the effort to be righteous. The wicked are flourishing just fine without that effort. But the Lord denies this. And this morning, the Lord gives his definitive rebuttal to Israel's complaint And the main point of this morning's passage is this. God is even now making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And that difference will become clear to all on the last day. Now, as we work through and see how God declares this to Israel, we'll begin in verses 16 to 18, where God first begins by describing the distinction that he is making even now between the righteous and the wicked. Now, so far in Malachi, we've seen really one group of people. It's those who do not honor the Lord or fear his name, who are actually quite open about their accusations against God. But in verse 16, we find out that there's another group. It turns out that not everyone went along with the majority. There are those who fear the Lord in Israel. And in response to Malachi's teaching, these God-fearing Israelites came together and they spoke to one another. And Malachi doesn't say what they spoke to one another. But presumably, they came together and encouraged one another in their obedience and in their worship in the face of the cynicism and unbelief all around him, them. Because this is exactly what God's people have always done. And it's why we believe that it's so important, particularly in a year like 2020, for us to be together, because a significant part of persevering faithfulness as God's people is coming together and encouraging one another. And this passage tells us 
what God's Word reminds us over and over again, and that's no matter how great the apostasy within Israel or the church, God has always preserved a remnant, no matter how small, who carries on faith and obedience in order that God's Word and God's purposes and God's kingdom might continue to advance. Now, here, notice with me the characteristics of this remnant of God's people. Verse 16 says that they feared the Lord and esteemed His name. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked more thoroughly about what it means to fear the Lord. But just as a brief reminder, as one author puts it, fearing God is knowing God and living with constant awareness of Him. It includes awe, worship, respect, and dread of disobeying the Lord. It is living, acknowledging that in every area of life it is God's will that is decisive for mine. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To esteem the name of the Lord is actually translating a fairly unusual word. It's a word that reflects thoughtful meditation on the greatness of God. But the word is not mere acknowledgement that God is great. The word here literally refers to the habit of consciously believing and affirming that God is the one thing in all of life to be honored and pursued and valued. That's what it means to esteem the name of the Lord, to consciously think, believe, and affirm that He is the one, the one alone to be honored, pursued, and valued. So here is this group, this group of those who fear the Lord and esteem His name, and God graciously comes and encourages this group, declaring that even now there is a distinction between them and those who dishonor and disobey the Lord. The distinction, of course, is not yet in their circumstances. This group of God-fearers are still just as much facing economic hardship, political oppression, There's not a distinction in their physical circumstances yet, but there is a distinction, and verse 16 summarizes it well. The Lord pays attention to the godly and hears them. A book of remembrance is written before him about these godly men and women, and he makes specific promises to them. Look at at each one of those. All throughout Scripture, God promises that he hears the righteous. Proverbs 15, 29, Psalm 34, 15 to 17, 1 Peter 3, 12. We could mention many others that all repeat the same point. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he hears their prayer. We may feel that circumstances are against us. We may not feel a particular burning in our bosom that God's responding to our prayer right away. But We know what God affirms to us. We know what God has promised us, and that is that He hears when His faithful people pray. And Malachi 3.16 is an example that testifies to this truth. His people feared His name and spoke to one another and called upon them, and He heard them and paid attention to them. Then God says that a book of remembrance was written, recording the names of those that fear the Lord. Now, this idea of a book of remembrance was a practice that the Persian kings kept where they would write down the names of those who had faithfully served them so that they would not be forgotten and they would be rewarded. Maybe some of you are thinking of the book of Esther where the king pulled out the book, the book of remembrance, and was reminded how Mordecai had served him and he rewarded him. 
That's an example. God, too, has a book of remembrance in which he records the name of his people. And Scripture talks all through the Bible about a book in which God's people's names are written. And and that theme culminates in Revelation 20 when the books are opened on the last day and anyone whose name is found in the book of life is saved while anyone not found in that book is condemned. What a blessing that in the midst of the challenges of life, when it may seem like God is not paying attention, we read that he is in fact personally watching and recording the names of his people in his book of remembrance so that they will not be forgotten and will be rewarded on the last day. And then this distinction between righteous and the wicked comes with a promise as well. In the day that God makes up his treasured possession, they will be his. Now the treasured possession is a word that refers to treasure that's set apart from normal treasure. You could have a treasure hoard, but set apart from that was the particular treasure, the treasured possession. That was an item of particular value or meaning or importance to its owner. And the faithful remnant of Israel is repeatedly called God's treasured possession. And then in the New Testament, we find in 1 Peter 2, when the same concept of a treasured people is applied to all those who come to God by faith in Christ. And we read that on that final day, when God makes up His treasured possession, He will spare the godly, those who fear His name, like a father spares his faithful son. So, is it useless to serve the Lord? Is there any distinction between the righteous and the wicked? The Lord says there is a distinction And that distinction is playing out even right now, along with its promises for the last day. Now let me pause and note that this is precisely the word that we need when life is difficult. Do you know disappointment and loss? Do you feel at times that God's promises aren't panning out for you? Suffering comes when we don't expect it or in ways that we didn't anticipate. Does it seem at times like you go from one grief or hardship to another and never really have time to recover in between? Does darkness seem to be stronger than the light? Or does temptation, do you face temptation and does the pull of temptation seem harder on your heart than God's word? Does it feel impossible to say no at times? Do those around you tell you that you will find the satisfaction you need by fulfilling your desires rather than saying no to them? In the face of the difficulties and the challenges of life, when we find ourselves feeling these things, it's precisely these words that we need. They're written to encourage us and give us strength. Even now, if we fear the Lord and esteem His name, The Lord pays attention to us and hears us. Even now, the Lord writes our names in his book of remembrance. Even now, we hear these words, You are mine, and in the day when I make up my treasured possession, you will be in it. I will save you like a father saves his own son. These are God's words to his people. There is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And this is what is coming 
to those who trust in the Lord and fear him on the last day. What words of strength for us. Well, this is the distinction between the righteous and the wicked that's very much alive and well right now. But then if you look at verses 1 through 3, God shifts his focus to the day that is coming, the great and awesome day of the Lord, when the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be evident to all. And God begins by describing the wicked. And he says, For them, the coming of the Lord will be like the arrival of a burning oven. And all the arrogant, now the arrogant would be those who decide not to submit to the Lord, but to live life according to their standards and desires rather than his. For all the arrogant and for the evildoers, those who do what is wicked, the arriving day will set them ablaze like stubble. Now stubble was the remains of the crop. It would have been like brush or kindling that would burn immediately and burn up quickly. And it's a picture of judgment that will be swift and intense upon the wicked. This judgment will also be final. You remember that earlier in Israel's history, God had judged Israel for their sin and sent them into exile. But do you remember how God said that that judgment was not final? That the Lord would preserve a root of Jesse and a branch would come from that root again, which would flourish? That judgment was not final. But on the last day, that is no longer the case. There will be no root or branch left to re-sprout and give hope. Every arrogant person who decides not to follow God and every evildoer will have had their chance. And now on that last day, judgment will arrive and it will be swift and it will be final. Surely then it is wrong for Israel to claim that evildoers escape. They are not escaping the Lord's judgment or justice. They are only filling up now the measure of wrath that God will justly deliver on the last day. These are strong words. To look at another human being and warn them that they risk the fire of swift and final judgment ought to shake us. How do we reconcile our thoughts of God's love with such a strong statement of wrath and judgment? While I was preparing this week, I happened across an article written by Cardinal George Pell. He's a Catholic bishop from Australia. And he asked this very question. It was a personal remembrance. He wrote that for years he was embarrassed by the doctrine of hell and taught that basically everyone, aside from Hitler and a few like him, would be saved. But then he was forced to rethink his position by an American bishop who asked, if basically all are saved, why should we bother? Why spend a life in ministry when ministry depends on the assumption that hell is very real and that salvation is a pressing matter? Why bother sending missionaries if basically everyone is saved when hell, when, when sending missionaries depends on the assumption that hell is very real and salvation is a pressing matter? Further, if there is no punishment in hell for most, why did Jesus bother? Why come as a baby and go to the cross if basically all are saved? 
We cannot minimize the full and final wrath of hell without also making Jesus' incarnation at Christmas and his death on the cross insignificant or unnecessary. In fact, Pell argues, sentimentalists like me ignore too easily the terrible suffering caused by sin and we underestimate the obstinacy of the human will. He says, Christian hope for the triumph of good requires God's judgment of evil. And there can be no great hope for justice and joy and healing without great judgment of the sin and arrogance and selfishness and evil that is at work so thoroughly all throughout the world. We must hold to the swift and final judgment of evil if there is to be any hope for justice and joy, if there is to be any worth in the death and resurrection of Christ. Pell then concluded by quoting John Finnis. Finnis is an Australian legal scholar who mentored men like Robert P. George and Neil Gorsuch. And Finnis argued that the failure to take seriously Jesus' claim to judge everyone on the last day is at the heart of our crisis of faith and morals in the 21st century. He said, while it's certainly true in a sense that one cannot be scared into heaven, this warning is not a scare tactic. It is the truth that God has spoken to us of what is coming. This isn't an arrogant claim to make Christians better than non-Christians. It is what we all deserve, and it is the reminder and the reason that we cling to Christ. And if we forget that coming judgment, we lose the strong reason to say no to sin and the world's attractions and yes to righteousness and faith. If we forget this final judgment, we lose how much we need a Savior and what a great Savior He is and how much He has accomplished for us and that life and hope and all eternity depend upon Him and in Him alone. And so the question stares each one of us in the face. We dare not be sentimentalists, assuming that, our, that salvation is our destiny as long as we're not a terrorist. We dare not have Santa Claus theology, assuming that God doesn't really give coal out, or if he does, it certainly wouldn't be for people like me. Remember, this warning that Malachi gives here isn't given to pagans out there, but to Israelites who knew of God, but who did not fear him or honor him or obey him in faith. And so the question for each of us is, do you have the assurance of salvation that is found only from entrusting yourselves to Jesus? Do you have the assurance that comes from submitting to him by faith alone and resting in his death and resurrection on our behalf? That's the question that faces us when we read that a day is coming burning like an oven. And Malachi doesn't sugarcoat the coming end of the arrogant or wicked. But then turn to verse 2. The righteous, what a difference there will be for them on the last day. The heat of the Lord's coming will not be a burning oven for them, but the warming rays of the sunrise of righteousness, which brings healing on its wings. If you've ever been camping or out early before dawn and felt the chill of pre-dawn cold, or maybe been out on a, a breezy and cloudy day, 
and then felt the rays of the sun as it comes out and brings warmth to your body, you know something of Malachi's image here. But I think for those of us who are used to a day of electric lights and modern routines, we also probably miss something of the significance of dawn and the sunrise. In the ancient world, dawn was the moment of hope and rest. After a long night when enemies might success most successfully attack, dawn brings rest and hope. And so you have a passage like Psalm 130, which says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I think J.R.R. Tolkien pictured this well in the words of Aragorn, the great king in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Aragorn said, dawn is ever the hope of men and day will bring me hope. And so it is that the Lord's coming can be described as the sunrise of righteousness, the dawn of righteousness, the hope and the healing warmth that will come on God's people on that last day. And when that day appears, those who fear the Lord, it says, will go leaping like calves out of their stall. You know that feeling of exuberance that cannot be contained but must burst forth? And your words and your actions, maybe, maybe a number of you uh, kids felt that on Wednesday night this week when a snow day was announced for the next morning. But it's the picture of youthful energy, the strength of joy, the adrenaline rush of rescue and hope that will come for the righteous on the last day. A sunrise of righteousness. We will go out leaping like calves from the stall. This will be the result brought by the work of the Lord and his Messiah on that last day. Then Malachi adds another comment saying that the righteous will tread down the wicked like ashes under the soles of their feet. We may be a little less comfortable with that line than we are like calves leaping on the hillside or the sunrise of righteousness, but this phrase is just as integral to the hope of God's people. Because Scripture and history demonstrate that the world has been a long story of the wicked trampling down the righteous. And while God's people are not promised earthly relief, they are promised justice on the last day. And that's the picture here. When the righteous will finally be exalted and the wicked humbled. And so we come to the end of these verses and we say, oh, what a distinction there will be on the last day between the righteous and the wicked, between God's people who wait for Him in faith and obedience and the arrogant who decide to live life their own way. Is it worth it to fear the Lord and keep His commands? Is it vain to serve the Lord, Israel? Malachi and the Lord's resounding answer is absolutely it is worth it. Just wait. The final day is coming. There is a distinction even now, and it will be evident to all on the last day. Well, if that day is coming with both judgment and salvation, what does that mean for the people in Malachi's day? How should they live in response? And that's what Malachi says in these final verses, verses 4 through 6. Israel was first to look back and remember the law of Moses. To remember, of course, was not just to call it to mind. It was to act on what they remembered. And keeping the law of Moses was Israel's path to blessing. It was the covenant charge 
of all who feared and loved the Lord. While today, for us, the law of Moses is not the requirement of our covenant before God in the same way that it was for Israel, the law still shows us who God is and what he loves and what he hates. And we are still called as God's people, grounded in the security of being joined to Christ and his righteousness. We are still called to put off sin and put on righteousness because we are his. Israel was called to look back and remember the law of Moses. They were also called to look ahead to the coming of Elijah, who would arrive just before the great and awesome day of the Lord. I realize the text says Elijah will come, not one like Elijah will come, and that creates some confusion or or doubt maybe in our minds, but this is often how the Old Testament speaks. So Jeremiah 30 verse 9, for instance, says that on the last day, Israel would serve David, whom God would raise up. Well, that refers not to a resurrection of David himself, but to Jesus, who sits on David's throne. And so here, it is not telling us, Malachi is not telling us that Elijah himself would come, but one who fills Elijah's prophetic role. And of course, the New Testament tells us over and over again that it's John the Baptist who fulfills this, who is the Elijah to come. And in fact, Gabriel, when Gabriel shows up to announce John the Baptist's birth to Zechariah, quotes this verse from Malachi, saying that John the Baptist will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and turn many in Israel to the Lord their God. This was a great promise because it meant that the Lord would not arrive with judgment in an instant. He would send a messenger first to prepare their hearts to turn their hearts back to him, to bring them to repentance so that more would fear the Lord and turn to him in faith. And of course, as it turned out, the arrival of the Lord was even more gracious because the day of the Lord, that great and awesome day, ended up happening in two stages where Christ arrived first to die for sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And only then, only after Christ has come and brought all his people to himself, only then will he arrive a second time and this final judgment take place. So Israel was to look back and remember the law of Moses. Israel was to look forward to the coming of the one like Elijah. But as they do both, do you notice that Malachi ends with another note of warning? lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Just consider, those were the last words, the last sentence of God's prophetic word that he would utter for 430 years until the arrival of Jesus. Seems like an uncomfortable last word. In fact, we know that many Jewish Masoretes actually rewrote verse 5 after verse 6 again to soften the final words. But of course, the threat of judgment and destruction was not God's last word. As one commentator put it, these are his next to last words. God's final word was sending his own son, the word become flesh, in whom The fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. The final word was the baby born on Christmas morning. 
And that last word, Jesus came to die in our place and offer redemption to all who will trust in Him. It's a free offer to any who will come in faith to find such a Savior. That is the last word. And so yes, there is even now a great distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And on the last day that is coming, that distinction will be evident to all and it presses us with that most important question. Have we put our faith in Christ? Will that day come like a burning oven or like the warm sunrise of righteousness? If we have put our faith in Christ, it is that warm sunrise of righteousness with healing in its wings that we look forward to. It is leaping like calves on the hillside that we have to look forward to. And so it is in Christ. We can say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a word that you've given to us. A word of promise that you hear and pay attention to all those who in faith fear your name and honor you and esteem you. What a blessing to hear you say that you write our names in a book of remembrance and that you will make us part of your treasured possession. And that last day will be a day of joy and hope. Father, thank you for giving us this clear warning of what will happen. This is not myth. This is not poetry. This is a description of the last day. And so how I pray that everyone here and all who are listening would turn to Jesus in faith for their hope. Father, would this Christmas be a time when we remember again how much we need Christ and how much you have done in sending him to us. And so may we rejoice and sing with great joy for what you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.